Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This week, cleaning out old cells prolongs life. All of the mice that were treated to remove their senescent cells had a lifespan extension neighboring from 25 to 35%. And the comedian who's taking on neuroscience. Maybe what we've discovered is the bit of the brain that lights up when we spot an elementary conceptual blunder in experimental design. (laughs) Plus how regrowing forests could help fight climate change. This is The Nature Podcast for February the 4th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Save the rainforest. It's a mantra chanted by environmentalists for decades, and there are many good reasons why it's a pretty good idea, especially when it comes to climate change. Deforestation accounts for up to 20% of global carbon emissions, so taking care of forests could help stave off climate change. But what if it's too late? What if an area has already been deforested? Well, Lawrence Porter from the University of Wageningen and his team have been studying how the regrowth of forests, called secondary forests, could factor in. Secondary forests regrow after a forest has experienced some kind of disturbance, like a fire or logging or clearing for farmland. Porter and his team are keen to work out a bit more about the regrowth process, and Noah Baker gave him a call. Forests are very important. They cover large parts of the terrestrial surface area, and they store a large amount of carbon, and they are responsible for a large part of the terrestrial productivity. Now, that's why people often refer to deforestation as being pretty catastrophic for, from a climate change perspective. Is it as simple as that? Well, I think there are two sides to the coin. I think it's very important to stop deforestation because they are indeed a very important source of carbon loss. It's about 20% of what we emit as humans is because of tropical deforestation. But you should also think about the potential of forests to take up carbon again. And then you talk about stimulating forest regrowth. So the idea there is that you plant new forests and they suck carbon back out of the air again. Indeed. So there's a tremendous potential for forests to regrow. And you can either do that uh, actively by planting yourself, but you can also do it passively by having nature let its uh, work being done. And in this paper, you've been assessing that potential. Yeah, what we try to do in this study is to get a comprehensive picture about how fast is this recovery in terms of biomass. So if you have abandoned areas that have been used for agriculture or for cattle ranging, 
what happens, how fast does the forest regrow naturally and how much biomass is being taken up? And we call that the recovery or resilience of biomass. And we've done so by comparing a number of studies of 45 sites across uh, Latin America. And you can imagine that recovery rates are slow in dry areas with poor soils, and they can be faster in wet areas with very fertile soils. So it's context-dependent, and it will vary from place to place what's the potential of these secondary forests to regrow. So how much potential do these secondary forests have when, when it comes to sucking up carbon? Now, the sequestration potential is tremendous. So if you have one patch of forest, say one hectare, then in one year it can take up three megagrams or three tons of carbon per hectare per year. And that's 11 times as fast as what a normal old growth forest is doing. So that sort of suggests to me that we should be cutting down forests and planting new ones because they suck up carbon faster. Forests fulfill different functions and services. So these old growth forests, they are wonderful because they store a large amount of carbon. You have these huge big trees that uh, have lots of carbon inside of them. But where these younger forests are good in is in capturing a lot of new carbon and fixing it into the system. And as part of your paper, you've developed a sort of a map to try to assess all these potentials across Latin America. Indeed. We thought it would be nice uh, as an input for uh, policymakers and governments or NGOs to show what's the potential across Latin America. If you imagine if you have an area where the forest has been removed and you would allow to regrow it, where are areas that are uh, hotspots of regeneration, where growth is fast, and where are areas where there are kind of cool spots or we should be careful uh, because if we destroy the system, it's a very sensitive system and it will take back a long time uh, to return to its original values. So instead of saying stop all deforestation, we could instead say a slightly more subtle picture, which is choose where we um, utilise forests in a, in, a, in a more informed way. Yeah, that's, that's in, in fact the take-home message of, of the paper. We say uh, value the potential of these secondary forests, so these forests that regrow after uh, land use. And they are not second-hand. They can fulfill vital functions. They can uh, store carbon, but they can also recycle water. They can build up fertility in the area again. They can store large amounts of biodiversity, so they can play a really important role. So we should benefit from that potential of nature and let nature regrow where it can regrow. So at the end of last year, in the Paris Climate Talks, forests were very much on the agenda. Do you hope that countries will be making use of papers like yours as they go forward? Yeah, we really uh, do hope so. And we made a first start with showing this potential biomass recovery map. And we are working now on a second paper in which we really show where are these young regrowing forests and how much carbon can they take up at this moment given their climatic conditions. So we hope to give more fine-tuned information for policymakers. And many countries have made uh, commitments in Paris. They say we're going to reforest uh, large areas that have been degraded. So, for example, some commitments uh, are that uh, 150 million of hectares should be reforested by uh, 2030. And we hope that these kind of maps can help them to plan better and see where we can use the potential of nature. So have a kind of nature-based solution 
and where you have natural forest regeneration. And maybe other areas where we help to help nature a little hands by planting trees and kick-starting this uh, regeneration process. That was Lawrence Porter from Wageningen University in the Netherlands. You can find out more about his study at nature.com forward slash nature. And his paper features the map he mentioned of resilient places to plant trees. If you had to describe science in one word, amusing might not be the top of the list. But comedian Robert Newman disagrees with you. He's just launched his new show, and it's all about neuroscience. It's called The Brain Show. And it's just as much about the interpretations of brain science as it is about the science itself. Newman has a long-standing interest in science. The Brain Show follows on the heels of a radio series and a book about evolutionary biology. I went to see the show, and then Robert dropped into the studio to tell me more. You've long been interested in science. Your comedy has often had scientific themes. Have you got a scientific background? Well, none at all. And uh, But in his 1940s lectures on the dynamics of per- perception, Wolfgang Kohler extols the virtues of trespassing as a scientific technique, both between different scientific disciplines and from sort of outside science, because something that's of special data in one field, when it's put in another field, can have a sort of wider application or be, you know, a catalyst some, somewhere else. So I see it as, as, as trespassing. You're trespassing on science. Yes. I guess I'm coming at both evolution and brain science from a sort of philosophy of science point of view. But aside from any philosophical interest, there was one event that features in the brain show. Uh, Let's just have a clip from the show now. At the beginning of 2014, I was one of 35 volunteer subjects who took part in a brain imaging experiment at the University College of London's Galton Lab, um, about half a mile north from here in Gower Street. What nobody knew at the time was that this was going to become a famous brain imaging experiment when it was written up in a paper called The Neurobiology of Romantic Love. And so it stuck in my craw that out of 35 volunteer subjects, I alone was written off as a negative result. (laughs) Claiming dramatic licence, I put myself in the experiment. I mean, I based the description of the experiment exactly on its methodology. Yes, they were tracking um, blood flow to look at blood oxygen um, level dependence um, of different bits of different neuronal clusters. And yes, people had to bring four photographs, one photograph of someone you're deeply in love with and three photographs of friends that you're fond of but are not in love with. And let's just hear the rest of that clip where you choose to highlight one methodological problem uh, with the study that you immediately encountered. When you look at a photograph of someone you're deeply in love with, you have all kinds of emotions, including guilt, regret, shame... Pity, joy, relief, exasperation, delight, all kinds of emotions, all kinds of thoughts as well. I'm looking at this photo and I'm thinking, is this the best picture of me I could have brought? (laughs) As the anecdote proceeds, it becomes clear that you found some faults in the brain imaging uh, experiment. And this, I have to say, is the part that made me laugh loudest on the night. It gets a very big laugh and uh, and it's the... I don't mean to be modest, but it's, I'm very pleased that I have a punchline, which is the words... Maybe, maybe what we've discovered is the bit of the brain that lights up when we spot an elementary conceptual blunder in experimental design. <laughs> I'm intrigued. What's the creative process like when you've got something as wildly hilarious as the scientific method as your source material? Well, uh, trial and error. I, I sort of, for about six months, you're going and you're trying out stuff. You do these you know, new material nights and the audience... Uh, are told to come with low expectations and the ticket price is quite cheap. And also you're sort of seeing what 
connects with people, what makes people's ears prick up, as well as, OK, that got a laugh, that, that didn't. But you also sort of think, ah, there's something there, you know, in that area. They sort of like that. And also my character sort of in the show gets things wrong, you know, when there's a, sort of this character, Natasha, when, you know, she says, will you do this brain experiment into the neurobiology of guilt? And I said, well, to be honest, I don't really think the brain works like that. I don't think there's, like, different bits of the brain that do different things. And she said, that's very interesting. She said, your view is what in neuroscience is called wrong. <laughs> Audiences want something that's got some my, uh, ideas in it. And um, rather than let's all cheer, let's be cheerleaders for those clever scientists and, and laugh at people that we'll never meet in our lives who live in the Southern Bible Belt or something... And in that sort of crass dichotomy doesn't interest me at all. Having dipped your toes into the water of evolution and now neuroscience, um, what's next? I don't really know uh, what I'll do next. Maybe something about the history of science, history of certain ideas. One of the things I was interested in doing in this show was to look at how, say, um, with V.S. Ramachandran's ideas about the evolution of smiling, how they absolutely do not come from evolutionary biology. They come from mid-19th century uh, romanticism. V.S. Ramachandran, the dean of neuroscience, Time magazine described him as one of the hundred most influential thinkers in the world. He speculates on the evolutionary origins of smiling, which, he says, evolved from an aborted snarl. He bases his theory on no evidence. And to, it's quite good to look at these, you know, uh, that the, the dean of neuroscience's ideas are do not derive from anything anyone would recognise as science. Instead, he says, when one of your ancestral primates... And, and right there, that's a curious choice of phrase, isn't it? Not when one of our ancestral primates, but one of your... <laughs> Clearly, he's cut from a superior cloth. We may have come down from the trees. He descended from the mezzanine. Sorry I'm late. I'm inven inventing verbs and cutlery. I mean, I mean, Darwin saw this completely differently. In the expression of emotions in man and animals, Darwin says, our long habit of uttering reiterated sounds from a sense of pleasure has evolved into the tendency to contract the orbicular and zygomatic muscles whenever any cause excites in us a feeling which, if stronger, would have led to laughter. May many future audiences utilise their orbicular muscles to um, <laughs> to laugh at your jokes in the audience. Um, thank you very much. Robert, thank you. Robert Newman is touring The Brain Show around the UK now. Find details and buy tickets at robnewman.com slash live. His most recent book, The Entirely Accurate Encyclopedia of Evolution, is out now from all good book places. Also entering the annals of fun science this week is our new video all about soft, squidgy robots. These things could be much more useful than their hard counterparts whenever delicate touch is called for. Think search and rescue missions and surgical procedures. Hit up youtube.com forward slash nature video channel to watch them wriggle around in a lab in Italy. There's also a feature about soft robots in this week's magazine, nature.com forward slash news. Keep listening to hear how a bit of spring cleaning for the body could combat ageing. But before that, it's time for the research highlights with Corrie Locke. In January of 2014, huge rainstorms and floods hit southern England, causing nearly half a billion pounds of property damage. Now researchers have found that human-induced climate change probably contributed to the storms. To figure this out, they took a citizen science approach. 
Volunteers let the researchers use the spare processing time on their personal computers to run simulations of winter weather in southern England. The chance of extremely wet winters was about 43% higher in simulations based on current climate conditions compared to those that modeled pre-industrial times. You can find the study in the journal Nature Climate Change. Two species of fungus have survived 18 months in a Mars-like environment on the International Space Station. The hardy organisms live inside rocks in the Antarctic, one of the harshest places on Earth. So researchers wondered, could the black fungi also withstand a Martian atmosphere? They had dried samples sent up to the space station, where they were exposed to 95% carbon dioxide and high levels of radiation. Back on Earth, the researchers found that less than 10% of the samples were able to divide and form colonies. But up to two-thirds of the cells remained intact and even yielded stable DNA. The paper was published in the journal Astrobiology. Sometimes a theory comes along that makes you think, ah, that seems like such an obvious idea now you've suggested it. And so it is with Darren Baker and his latest research project. He and his colleagues were interested in ageing, and they thought, could we delay ageing and prolong life if we just took out all the old, worn-out cells? When cells in the body get old, they either kill themselves or they enter a state called senescence, kind of like a suspended animation at the end of their lives. These cells could be harming their neighbours and leading to tissue damage. So, the researchers found a way to selectively kill them off in a special mouse model. Darren Baker told reporter Ewan Calloway how he got into doing the study in the first place. It had to do with a particularly haggard-looking mouse. The way we came into ageing in the first place, we started with a model that was supposed to be a cancer model and instead ended up looking, the mouse looked awful at five months of age. And so that was where our entry into the ageing field came from. Can you explain what senescent cells are? They kind of sound like worn out cells. That's right. So senescent cells are these damaged, worn out cells that typically as a cell maybe encounter a lot of severe damage, it can undergo basically two distinct cell processes where one would be an apoptotic response where it's just it dies and is removed from the tissue. The other is where it will become a senescent cell and become a, a permanent resident within tissues and organs. And as you see, if you look in and if you look in mice, if you look in people, you do see an accumulation of these senescent cells with age, suggesting that they're either maybe efficiently removed early on in our lives or that there's maybe a difference in kinetics later on in our life where the intrinsic mechanisms that we have to maybe combat these negative cells are maybe failing with age. And then you see these age-related accumulation. And your team tested a what seems like on the surface a really simple idea what happens if you get rid of these senescent or worn-out cells? How do you do this? We knew that senescent cells were accumulating with age in natural tissues, and the thought was, let's just start removing these things starting at midlife in mice and see what the consequences were. We used a transgenic approach that we utilized the expression of a marker that most senescent cells have, that's the expression of a P16 gene that locks cells in this permanent growth arrest. And what we used was we used P16 to drive the expression of a drug-inducible suicide gene. When we add the particular drug, it causes activation of the suicide gene and thus triggering the endogenous apoptotic response of a cell to remove it. And what happens to the, the health of the mice? Are there any effects from, from killing off senescent cells? 
there were really no negative consequences. The only thing that we actually found were either no effect in some tissues, but for the most part, we found beneficial impacts in, in a variety of tissues. So the mice were, were aging uh, more healthfully? Is, is that what you'd, you'd say? Yes. So, so what we found is that when we started treating mice at 12 months of age, uh, we just did a consistent treatment to always be removing senescent cells as they were arising. And what we found is that if you looked just at the overall health span of animals that we found uh, at 18 months of age, so after six months of treatment, the treated animals were more exploratory, more active. They had also improvements in kidney function, in heart function, a variety of uh, things that are benefited in those particular animals when we did some further studies. Did they live any longer? We found that all of the mice that were treated to remove their senescent cells had a lifespan extension neighboring from 25 to 35 percent. In all cases, we found that there was a significant health and lifespan extension. Which is pretty, that's pretty significant. Like That's what you get from other inter- interventions that have been tested in lab animals, right? That, that is correct. It is it is on par with what we've seen before in, in all the well-published and, and well-known studies. And I think what is also pretty remarkable to think about is when we actually try to quantify the amount of senescent cells that are accumulating within tissues, these things represent a, a small fraction of the overall number of cells within the tissue. But because of the nature of the things that they're secreting and influencing other cells within the environment, their effects are magnified. Could these approaches ever be uh, taken to humans? That's a great question. The genetic model that we used obviously cannot. So even filling you or I with as much of this particular drug as we used in the study, it's going to have no impact because we don't have the the suicide gene within us. But there are a variety of groups that, that we know of that are specifically looking for compounds that can selectively eliminate these senescent cells with, with age that accumulate in you and I. And so it, it is not a far, far-fetched far idea to think that there will be things that will be coming down the pipeline that influence or remove these senescent cells. In this particular experiment, what we did was more or less a prevention strategy. So we started treating before these senescent cells were actually there. But clear follow-ups would be to take now advanced aged animals do the same sort of approach where we know senescent cells are there, remove them and see what the consequences are. Maybe it may be good, maybe it might be bad. We're not really sure at the moment. That was Darren Baker at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The research paper is at nature.com forward slash nature and there's a news story about the work too at nature.com forward slash news. Time now for our news chat and joining me in the studio, it's Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver and reporter Ewan Calloway. Now, Celeste, first of all, you're here to tell us about the Zika virus, the mosquito-borne disease that the World Health Organization, the WHO, have just called explosive. They said it's likely to spread explosively. Can you just give us a kind of uh, a briefing, first of all, on the outbreak? Zika, as you said, is mosquito-borne and has been around in the world for quite a while. But things took a turn uh, last year in 2015 when it arrived in the Americas for the first time. And since then, there's been a really big outbreak in Brazil and also some other outbreaks in several of the countries in South and Central America. So it's common, reasonably common to Asia and, and Africa already. And this is the first time we've seen it in the Americas. Is it is it dangerous? Well, people don't really know. Until it hit the Americas, it was mainly thought to have very mild symptoms. In some people, it doesn't have any symptoms. In others, headache and a rash. Um, What's causing alarm this time around 
is there's been this reported surge in a type of birth defect called microcephaly, which causes children to have small heads and brains, causing Brazilian authorities to report a possible link between the two. So what they've got so far is just a correlation between some quite alarmingly large numbers of microcephaly compared to the average amount of cases that are reported. And of course, they know that the Zika virus is circulating. But is that all it is, just a correlation at the moment? Some people don't even think there's a correlation. So um, the story we, we wrote this week is about a team in Latin America who are responsible for monitoring birth defects, who have looked at this reported surge, which is all based on data from the various states of Brazil, looking for microcephaly. And they say they're not so sure that there is a massive rise. This increase in reports could be due in part to the fact that people have a heightened awareness to the condition. And so they're more likely to go to the doctor. Doctors are more likely to look for it. And it's just being diagnosed a lot more combined with the fact that they think there's probably some misdiagnoses in there as well. So the um, diagnostic criteria for microcephaly are quite nebulous, I suppose. It's difficult to diagnose things like measuring a baby's head, but there's always going to be errors where a child just has a slightly small head, not because it has microcephaly. So these guys, in a sort of quite provocative report, have raised the possibility that actually there is no surge. Um, There might be a slight rise, but they're saying most of the reported surge can be attributed to these um, external effects. What do other epidemiologists make of this report? There's a spectrum of opinion. Most agree that some portion of this surge is is going to be inflated over what's really happening. Some kind of agree with these scientists that what they're saying is completely possible. Some sort of say they're reserving, ju- reserving judgment um, until we've got more data and others think that there probably is a, a, a big rise, though not as big as has been reported. And on the question of more data, I presume there are efforts already ongoing to gather more data as to, you know, prospective studies of people who are pregnant now giving birth and what happens to their babies. Well, that's what everyone really wants and what the scientists don't yet have. Um, So a prospective study in which pregnant women in areas of Brazil um, experiencing Zika outbreaks are monitored to see how many of their children develop microcephaly. And several of those are underway, but nothing has been published and several more are starting. So it's in a pretty early stage and that you're absolutely right. That's exactly the thing that's sort of missing. Okay, thanks, Celeste. And I'm going to refer people, of course, to the new section where we'll be continuing to monitor the Zika story. Ewan Calloway, you're up next. And listeners will remember last year's coverage of the researchers who edited genes in human embryos with this technique called CRISPR. The latest is an approval for such a study, a similar study in the UK. This week, uh, UK regulatory authorities have given the go-ahead to researchers at the Francis Crick Institute to do some experiments um, using CRISPR to modify the genomes of viable human embryos. Now, in the previous case, the team of Chinese researchers had used non-viable human embryos, embryos that were never going to be able to develop into babies. Uh, There's a difference here, isn't there? But they will be making sure, obviously, that this is not uh, any attempt to edit the genome of something that will go on to be a baby. No, these are absolutely, without a doubt, not CRISPR babies. Um, The embryos come from IVF clinics in in Britain. Uh, The people, the couples who are donating them have, have agreed to have their surplus embryos donated for research. And the research will stop after about a week, and it can go no longer than than two weeks. Uh, This is around the stage when uh, a developing embryo would would be implanted on the uterus, a so-called blastocyst stage. And what are they studying, these researchers? Why do they need to edit the embryos with CRISPR? They are interested in 
very early development, very early human development, what happens in this first seven or so days? Because when a when an egg is fertilized by a sperm, it starts uh, starts dividing and dividing and dividing, and only a subset of these cells actually go on to form uh, the fetus or the baby. A lot of the cells uh, go on to form uh, placenta, and so they're kind of interested in you know what's going on. What are the master regulators that are determining the, these very early cellular fates? Uh, it's quite common for, for pregnancy to, t- to terminate early, and the, and the hope is that by understanding the biology of, of the very early stages of pregnancy, maybe you can, you can come up with ways of dealing with, with problems like early termination. In Britain, at least, and, and in some other countries, uh, it's, it's acceptable to do research on, on viable human embryos. We've made that decision before in, in the past, uh, given what we can learn from them. And so a lot of people are saying, with, with that precedent, uh, this research should be un- uncontroversial. Of course, nothing is uncontroversial when we're talking about CRISPR and embryos. And so, I mean, I, I haven't spoken with anybody who's, who's opposed to the, this research, but I'm sure there will be out, people out there who say we shouldn't be doing any research at all on human embryos, even if it has no chance of ever forming a live human being. Do you think that here in the UK, where this approval has gone through, and perhaps even elsewhere in the world, this kind of project will be more likely to get approval? Yes. Um, I think a lot of UK scientists were waiting for this decision to be made. One researcher has told me that he's heard from people who you know, will maybe soon submit applications to do their own research on, on human embryos. In other countries, um, there are some countries where, like in Britain, there are regulations that, that limit it, and it, this decision might embolden them to apply for permission. Uh, in still other countries, such as the United States, there are no laws prohibiting people from doing this for research. They can't get federal funding for it, but there are no laws preventing them. So maybe this could spur them to to go ahead and do it. Uh, I think the same goes for China, where the early experiment you talked about went forward. So we might see some some more papers coming out from China uh, reporting uh, efforts to, to modify the genomes of human embryos. Now, of course, we've been talking about using CRISPR for research. It's a very important dis- distinction to make between research and then any reproductive use it might be put to. Um, does this open the door to these other reproductive uses? Sort of. As you state, this is this is all about research. Uh, Britain's regulators have said, you know, it's to, it remains illegal to modify the genome of a, of a baby in Britain. And this, re- this, this decision changes nothing. But what people have told me is that in, in doing this research to understand early pregnancy, we can figure out if it's even possible to use CRISPR on, on human embryos. You'll remember that the one experiment that's been published from, from scientists in China found that it was both you know, inefficient and error-prone. Research like this could provide technical information if you wanted to do germline modification. Okay, thank you to Ewan Calloway and to Celeste Beaver for joining me. And as always, you can find those stories and much more over at nature.com slash news. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel as well, youtube.com forward slash nature video channel, where last week's video on the computer that can play the board game Go is still getting a lot of attention. Also, because robots. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.